0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Welcome to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week, I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful top-of-their-field specialists and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project and I'd love to continue to do more. So if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads, do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release. Go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on Acas Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode. Or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The first time I made a will was when I got pregnant with my first child. But once I had children, I found it much harder to update it. This is because once you have children, you have to think about legal guardians if anything happens to both you and your partner. And who wants to think about that? So I did what so many people do and stuck my head in the sand until one day I was asked to launch a will-making project called Plan If, launched by the Child Bereavement Network. I told them I'd love to do it and help launch it, but I hadn't myself made an up-to-date will on the morning of the launch, on the way to the launch, guess what? I met up with my solicitor and finally did it. But let me tell you, the whole way to the venue, I was convinced I'd be killed, simply because I'd made a will. So I understand the fear this subject evokes. No one really likes to think about dying and stuff like wills. But at the launch of Plan if, various people who had lost their parents when they were children spoke. These people were now adults but some of them cried as they talked about not only the obvious impact of losing their mother or father, or sometimes both, but the impact of their parents not having made wills or attended to the very boring but necessary task of what I now call pre-death paperwork. I find using the word death purposely takes away some of the sting for me. This episode is about wills, lasting power of attorney, trusts and probate, and a few other bits to do with that pre-death paperwork. I talked to solicitor Gary Rycroft, who specializes in all those things. Gary is a practicing solicitor and partner with over 25 years of experience in a small high street firm in Lancaster called Joseph A. Jones, and he is very much part of the local community. For a number of years, Gary was the chair of Dying Matters, which is now part of Hospice UK. Gary has served on the Law Society's Wills and Equity Committee. He contributes to various media outlets, including the BBC's consumer affairs programme, Rip Off Britain. But the reason he's my go-to for such matters is because he's not only so knowledgeable, but makes it all accessible and a whole lot less scary. So make yourself a cuppa and let me and Gary talk you through wills and things. Gary, hello and welcome to the podcast. We're going to be talking about everything to do with estate management. What would we call it? Sort of things to think about before you die. But what I want to get across is this isn't just something that old people should think about, is it?
2: No, it isn't. I would call it planning for death and, and dying, which sounds very miserable, but does. Um, <laughs> um, there's, there's, there's no kind of spoilers here, but it's going to happen to all of us. And so it's better to, to expect it to happen uh, and to put in hand arrangements. And as you say, if we look at the stats, of course... Most people die when they're older, but sadly that's not always the case and and younger people do die from time to time and and that can be devastating on many, many levels, but obviously it can also be devastating if people haven't made arrangements.
1: When you say arrangements, do you mean a will? Yeah,
2: a will is the kind of basic starting point, but there's other things like life insurance. You know, If if you've got a mortgage, what's going to happen to paying that mortgage if, if you're no longer around to do it? having a conversation about a will is is usually a trigger to start talking about these these bigger issues.
1: Okay, so let's go through it. Imagine somebody's listened to this and they've not planned anything. What should they start with?
2: Well, as I say, the starting point, I think the catalyst should be making a will because that should trigger off thoughts and conversations about your loved ones, who they are, who's going to provide for them if you're not around It's going to start conversations about what assets you've got and what you want to happen to them. Assets sounds very grand, but we've all got something. You might be a homeowner. uh, You might be renting a property, but you might have deposits in the bank, savings account, premium bonds. You might have things of sentimental value. And to be honest, often it's the sentimental things that cause the most anguish for people that are left behind. You know, I've seen situations in my practice where there's maybe been a second marriage and the thing that's really upsetting the most for the children from the first marriage is that they've no longer got access to the photographs of them growing up because they were with dad and dad's now died and everything's gone to stepmom and and they've they've kind of lost a bit of their childhood, they feel. So it's often the sentimental stuff uh, that's far more important to people than the actual hard cash.
1: Well, I mean, I get a lot of problems, as you know, because you and I have spoken many times over the years about these things, about the cash, (laughs) the hard assets Mm. rather than the sentimental. Mm. And one of the things that I think I've realised is that sometimes people who feel they haven't got love from their parents become very squabbly over the will. And it's almost as if the money stands in for attention and affection. And I see that a lot. So obviously having a will is a really good idea to stop squabbling. But that doesn't mean that a will will stop that because obviously not everyone might agree with it. In this country, can you leave your estate, for want of a better word, to anyone you want?
2: The short answer to that is yes. The longer answer is not quite. So in England and Wales, I make a distinction there because that's a separate legal system from Scotland and Northern Ireland. Uh, In England and Wales, we do have what we call testamentary freedom, which means you can leave your estate wherever you like. But there are restrictions to that. So, for instance, there's a piece of legislation called the Inheritance Provision for Family Independence Act 1975, which is a bit of a mouthful. And what that says is that if you're a person who hasn't had reasonable financial provision from an estate, then you're entitled to bring a claim against the estate. And the usual people there are, of course, spouses and unmarried partners and and, and children, people that have some kind of financial dependency on the person that's died. So yeah, as I say, the short answer is yes, you can do what you want. But the more nuanced answer is you do need to consider certain people who would say that in life, they had a financial relationship or dependency upon you. And so in death, they they should be treated fairly and made, made provision of some kind.
1: So just to be clear, if I left everything to a donkey sanctuary, do you mean that my children would could possibly reasonably say, hang on a minute, what about us?
2: Yeah, my understanding is that your children are still relatively young and financially dependent upon you, Annalisa. So, so yes, they, they certainly would. As children get older and become adults, that financial dependency uh, diminishes. Uh, and actually, there's an interesting case of, a few years ago where a, where a lady did leave her estate to animal charities, not to her daughter. And the daughter challenged it. Um, they'd had a very difficult relationship for many years, and and that was why Mum didn't want to leave her estate to the daughter. But the daughter brought forward evidence to say that uh, Mum didn't even like animals, and it was it was just vindictive for her to leave the estate um, to the animal charities. And the daughter was successful in, in 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 having part of the estate given to her. So if you are going to leave it to the donkey sanctuary, Annalisa. I would say show that you've got a strong connection to the donkeys, show that love for the donkeys to show that it's not just a perverse thing that you're doing, but as your daughters are financially dependent upon you at the moment, they are going to be entitled to bring a claim against your estate.
1: I know just if my daughters do listen, and no one in my family does listen to my podcasts, by the way, <laughs> um, I'm not leaving it to a donkey sanctuary. But I have heard, I mean, you, you know, you're talking about that woman who was slightly vindictive and you know, sometimes people do do that. They threaten to, to leave stuff. I think that's
2: very, very true, that issues that have simmered along for years suddenly come to the fore. When when someone dies, it's, it's a kind of opportunity for family members to play out mm. issues that have been going on for a long time. Now, as you say, a will can't head that off. It's, it's not a silver bullet that's going to solve that. But I think there are approaches that can make the process better so if someone is going to leave out a family member and they've not got a financial dependency so that's kind of okay from a legal point of view you really ought to explain that and and I, I I encourage clients to put it down in in writing with me you know in in a confidential way to actually explain why they're they're missing out one of their kids so that there is a reason that can be given if 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 it's questioned because otherwise there is a danger that The family are just going to use the death to, as I say, uh, carry on with, with some internal issues. You know, someone quite wise said to me once, it kind of changes the tectonic plates in the family, doesn't it? Suddenly someone's not there. And that person may have had a, a kind of role within the family, a peacemaker or, or whatever. And suddenly there's a, there's, a, there's a vacuum there, isn't there? And people rush in to fill it and, and to kind of establish their new positions within the family. So it, it is a very significant time. You know, That that's an obvious thing to say, but it, it really is.
1: No, I totally agree. And what I say to readers who ask is that I say, well, ultimately you can leave your money to who you want, but maybe have a family meeting while you're still alive to discuss this because you know if that's what you're going to do then I think you should face people and tell them I mean of course ideally everything would be split equally but that's not always the case should you tell people what's in your will
2: on the one hand I'm kind of trained in confidentiality but on the other hand I I say to clients whilst I'll keep all this confidential I I would encourage you to talk to people for that very reason Annalisa that actually one of the other reasons that we have issues post-death is because people get a surprise, a kind of nasty surprise in some cases. So if you can talk about it with the family and say, look, this is what I'm doing. It might not be what you expect, but this is what I'm doing. And this is why at least people know
1: What else should you think about when making your will?
2: Well, the basics of making a will are appointing executors. Executors are the people who are going to carry out your wishes after your death. They're going to be responsible for putting together a schedule of your assets and liabilities. So they're going to contact the banks and building societies. They're going to deal with the sale of your house, that kind of thing. So you want people that are responsible, good with money. And if you're getting older yourself, you want someone who is... Probably younger than you because you want them to be around after you're no longer around, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So executors are really important. Obviously, many executors outsource the legal work to a solicitor or something of that kind. But at the end of the day, they the work is being done in, in their name. They're, they're ultimately responsible. And then, obviously, it's about dividing up the estate and, and thinking about your particular circumstances, your particular family, what needs do people have. If, if you share your house with someone... Presumably they want to carry on living there after you've died, so you need to think about that. You know, Think about what financial assets you've got and how you want to divide things up. As you say, with children, the starting point is is almost always dividing it equally between them. Parents want to be fair to their children, but sometimes children have different needs. If you have a child that has particular needs... A child that's never going to be able to look after money for themselves for whatever reason. You need to be realistic about that and maybe think about creating some kind of trust arrangement. And then there's all the other ancillary issues that we touched upon in terms of, you know, if you have young children, who's going to look after them? Who's going to be the guardian? What your funeral wish is going to be? Are the particular items of sentimental value that you want to distribute out to people? Are the charities and organisations that you've supported during your lifetime that you feel you can, you know give a small sum to when you've died because you want to support them in death as as well as in life.
1: You mentioned legal guardians and this seems to be from my anecdotal experience the number one reason that people with children don't make a will. They can't bear to think about that and what really shifted things for me was when I found out, I don't know if you told me or one of my other lawyers, that the legal guardians don't necessarily have to be who your children live with because my thing was if I die and my children are young, I might want X y z to be the person people they live with, but as they get older, they might need somebody else so can we just go over that I mean who should you appoint as your as a legal guardian for your children and what do you have to think about
2: yeah sure well we we still use the term legal guardian in wills, but actually the laws moved on since the children's Act, which was way back in nineteen eighty nine we now have the concept of parental responsibility and we have the concept of, 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 of residence and so as you say quite correctly you can appoint someone with parental responsibility who doesn't necessarily have to have residence with that child the whole time or indeed any of the time and what the children's act also says is that the most important person of course in any decision about a child's future is the child themselves. Mm. I've often had will appointments with people with younger children and we've we've kind of gone through the whole executors and we're dividing up the estate this way then it comes to the guardianship and it's a real stumbling block because it's a horrible horrible thought to think that you're not going to be around for your kids so it it churns people up of course and then it's a massive issue for them to think about well who's actually going to do this and that's from both sides who's gonna you know who can we actually give this responsibility to Because it's such a massive responsibility and and actually are the people that we actually, quote, trust to to do it and to do it in the way that we'd want our kids to be brought up. So it can be a massive stumbling block. And as you say, I I think it can ease people's pain in that regard if you do explain that actually you don't just need to have one person that's going to be the guardian that's responsible for this child the whole life. Why don't you just name a kind of team of people, say, you know, various Members of my family or friends who I would like to be involved in bringing up my child or or children, and as as my child or children get older, they must decide themselves where they want to live. That might be connected to where their own friends are, which schools they're going to, rather than sending them off across the country to go and live with their quotes nearest and dearest, because. You know, it just might not be appropriate for a child to do that.
1: And it's important to remember also that if you don't make a will and appoint someone to take parental responsibility, then if you die, if both of you die, both parents die, then the court will decide, won't they? Yeah, well,
2: of course, the court will decide anyway. There will have to be a court order to appoint someone with parental responsibility in residence. What you're doing in the will is actually telling the court what your view is about it. So I always say to clients... This is going to be influential on the court, because the court will want to look at what the parents wanted. But it it won't be definitive, because the court will look at it in the round. And as I say, the most important decision will be what the child themselves articulate and say what they want to happen.
1: And what happens generally if you die without a will?
2: So we've got the set of uh, laws called the intestacy rules. So... When we're kind of encouraging people to make a will, sometimes we have the carrot of saying make a will because it gives you the choice of what you want to happen and you can make all these decisions yourself which is a great thing. The stick is sometimes the intestacy rules which is well this is what will happen if you don't do it. The intestacy rules favour children and favour children's spouses and other blood relations. Now, so you might think that that's a really good thing. If you if you have a kind of traditional nuclear family, then, you know, people say, oh, well, I don't need to make a will because everything will go to my spouse, then it will go to the children. Well, that might be the case. But again, if you've got young children, the intestacy rules provide for them to inherit at the age of, of 18 years. Well, if if both parents have died there could be quite a lot of capital there, quite a lot of money floating around. You might not want your kids to have all that money at the age of 18. So although the intestacy rules might ultimately give things to the right people in your mind, it might not work out in the right way. And of course, there are significant issues with the intestacy rules if you're an unmarried person because your partner will not inherit, or if you have a blended family of any kind because it does give priority to spouses or civil partners, over children. Mm. That can be a real issue.
1: Well, yes. One of the things I think is quite a good idea is actually making children inherit, if you want to leave it to children, when they're 25, because that's near to when the brain stops developing. I think actually 18, I'm not quite sure if I'd have inherited at 18, what would have happened to me. I was much more sensible at 25, 26. So it doesn't have to be 18, does it?
2: Absolutely not. Again, I completely agree with you. For some reason people seem to have in their heads 18, 21 and 25. I think 21 is the kind of traditional coming of age and maybe people have finished university. 18 of course is the the new coming of age. Most people go for 25 and I certainly, not that it's my decision at least when people make wills of course, but I certainly encourage people to go towards 25 for that very reason that Mm. uh, scientists say that's when you you actually eventually mature.
1: You mentioned executors earlier. Should they see the will and can they be beneficiaries in the will if they're an executor?
2: It's a common misconception that executors can't be beneficiaries, that they certainly can. And for many people, it's absolutely right that the executors are also the main beneficiaries. If you're an older couple and you've got adult children, it makes complete sense to appoint your adult children as the executors and for them to be the beneficiaries when you've both died. Of course, that means that the executor makes decisions, for instance selling the house, which has an impact on the beneficiaries. So, you know, if they are the same people, then it can work really, really well. If you've got younger children, or you've got children that you don't think are going to be suitable as as executors, then then of course you can appoint independent people to do it, either draw on family members or friends, or as a kind of last resort, you can have a professional executor like a solicitor. But I always say we are the last resort because there are financial implications of having a solicitor executor. Uh, and it also means that the solicitor has a right to administer the estate. And you might want your executors to be able to shop around when you've died and get the best deal for the legal fees, as it were.
1: Once you're dead, should the executors should have sight of the will, shouldn't they?
2: There's no compulsion of you to show the will to the executors whilst you're alive as a matter of politeness you ought to ask the people you're thinking of appointing as executors if they want to do it because it could be a terrible shock to them if you haven't and they might you know panic and, and not want to do it and it's better to find that out before you appoint them than after you've died um so do ask them if they want to uh, be executors but you don't have to show them the will that that's a judgment for you again referencing whether you want to have transparency or, or not, but the, the, there may be confidential things in the will that you, you you don't want the executors to be burdened with whilst you're alive. But once dead, cause once dead, they absolutely need to see a copy of the will because they've got to. They are responsible for carrying out the will, so they they need to to have sight of it then.
1: And what about? And I've had letters like this: if one person won't share the will,
2: this is tricky, isn't it? Because. The will ultimately becomes a public document, so once you've died and your executors have applied for what's called a grant of probate, which is the legal document that's required for the executors to prove that they're entitled to administer the estate and, and to then close down bank accounts, sell the house or whatever they have to do within that role. Once they apply for the grant of probate, the will becomes a public document. Uh, you, you can apply to the probate court for a copy of anyone's will. The only people who are exempt from that are certain members of the royal family who seem to want to keep their wills secret from us all.
1: I thought you only had to apply for grant of probate if your entire estate and all your assets was over a certain amount. Is that not correct?
2: That's not correct. There's, there's no hard and fast rule about that. It depends on the nature of the asset and how the the institution or organisation that holds that asset on behalf of the estate wishes for it to be dealt with. If you go along to certain banks and the balance in there is £25,000, they might not want to grant a probate. If it's £60,000, they may well. But different banks have different rules. There's there's no consistency across the board.
1: Most of the time after people's death, a grant of probate is applied for. Would you say that's right?
2: Well, I would say it's right for a married couple on the second death. On the first death, it's often not the case because assets can pass to the surviving joint owner automatically without need for a grant. And it applies when you are the owner of a house and you're the the sole owner of a house and that is then being passed on through your will. So I would say out of all the wills in our strong room here in the office probably about three quarters of them lead to a grant of probate. Uh, maybe a quarter of them don't uh, because the value of the estate isn't sufficient or because they belong to a, someone who's in a married couple or civil partnership and I see. and they're the first to die.
1: But once grant of probate has been um, granted, the will is available for anyone to see, yes? It is, yeah. Yeah. I think that really shocks some people. <laughs> I only found that out a few years ago and it was quite interesting and I spent many a happy afternoon looking at whose wills. But you have to pay. It's a very small amount, but you do have to pay.
2: You do indeed. If you are doing something
1: like leaving out one of your children from the will,
2: it's better to do that and record the reasons in a separate document rather than within the will itself because you don't necessarily want all your family issues to be aired in, in public, do you?
1: Oh, that's a good tip. Because also, you don't have to, but it's a good idea to put in your will what your funeral arrangements are, and that could also be a separate document. Is that a codicil? What's a codicil?
2: A codicil is a a minor amendment to a will. So, for instance, if you had made a will already, Annalisa, and you'd appointed uh, two executors, sadly one of them dies and you want to therefore appoint a replacement executor, you'd probably do that under a codicil because you're just changing one thing, not the whole will Mm. itself if that makes sense
1: but other stuff like why you might be leaving someone out or your funeral arrangements that's that doesn't have to be part of your will it can just be a document that sits with it
2: yeah exactly You, you can reference it in the will so you could say something oblique like i've not made provision in this my will for my son john for reasons i've made known to my solicitor or my executors so there's a statement but then the actual reasons sit separately
0: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. If you live with someone and you're not married or you're not in a civil
1: partnership, and they die, and they haven't named you in a will, where might you stand?
2: Probably in in a very tricky position, to be honest. Under the intestacy rules, unmarried partners aren't recognised. So if you haven't made a will and you you live with someone, your estate will end up going to your closest blood relation. It might be your children, it might be your parents, it might be your siblings. I think you have a real responsibility if you aren't married, but you're in a long-term committed relationship, to, to think about making wills to just protect each other and and actually this brings in another really interesting issue that I I've realized over the years Annalisa that making a will is a legal thing of course it is on a more philosophical level if we can call it that it's about showing your responsibility towards people and your love for people actually that you care about them if you haven't made a will what what are your family going to think they're going to think that you didn't really care about what happens after you've died and what happens to them Mm. So I, I think on that deeper level, it's it's really important to do it. I
1: couldn't agree more. We have a lot of blended families now. What happens if somebody was married, isn't divorced, but goes to live with someone else, and then they die? Does a will trump the marriage or the marriage trump the will?
2: The Marriage trumps the will. So the usual rule, and this is a really good point to get out there, the usual rule is that um, if you have a will but then get married the act of marriage automatically revokes the will. The only exception to that is that if you expressly make a will, quotes, in expectation of marriage. So if if you know that you're getting married, you can make a will that is expressed to carry on being valid after the marriage. This is another issue that I think is, is a barrier to people making wills because they put it in the too hard box and I'm sure you see this a lot Annalise with your letters that you know blended families is almost too difficult to think about in terms of well you know I'm in this relationship now I might be on a second marriage and I've got kids from my first marriage and I've got stepchildren and, and it, oh it's just too hard for me to think about and and actually For someone like me, it isn't hard at all. It's something that we see every day and there's really simple things you can do. You know, you can create a very simple will trust, allows your spouse or new partner to carry on living in the house after you've died and then ultimately passes on the house to the two families or whatever. It's really simple. We do it every day.
1: You've mentioned a trust. Now trusts give me white noise. What is a trust?
2: Yeah. Trusts are not just for people that live at Downton Abbey, you know, they're a very common arrangement. A trust is basically a situation where you have a, an asset that's looked after by trustees uh, for the benefit of defined beneficiaries. Now, within a will, the executors of your will become the trustees, so they look after the asset for the beneficiaries that you've named in your will. Now, two very common examples of a trust created by a will are a gift to a minor beneficiary a beneficiary who's under the age of 18 years or under the age that you've specified in the will which might be higher 25 that asset is looked after by the executors and trustees until that beneficiary has attained the stipulated age another very common trust is to do with with houses and and as you know people often own houses either with someone else or on their own and they want to make sure that the person they live with in that house is able to carry on living there after they've died. And you do that by saying in your will, I give my house uh, in trust to my executors and trustees to provide a home for my partner for the rest of his or her life. And then after uh, he or she has died, it passes on to my children. So a very simple trust, but achieves what you want to achieve, which is for two different sets of people to benefit from the same asset at different times.
1: So it's a bit like a sort of intention of promise or something like that? Yeah, that's a
2: good way of putting it, absolutely, yeah, yeah.
1: Inheritance tax, what is it?
2: I suppose the first thing to say is that anything that passes on death between spouses and civil partners is fully exempt from inheritance tax. Right. The other entities that are exempt from inheritance tax are charities and political parties. I wonder why the government put that exemption in. Anyway, uh, (laughs) uh, anyway, so... Transfers on death between spouses and civil partners are exempt from inheritance tax. As individuals we have an allowance for £325,000 that can be transferred between spouses and civil partners. So if you have uh, mum and dad, um, dad dies first, he leaves his estate to mum, mum then has her own inheritance tax allowance called the nil rate band of £325,000 And she also has transferred to her 100% of dad's unused nil-rate band. It was unused because everything went to her and she was exempt from inheritance tax. So mum finds herself at that point as a widow with inheritance tax allowances of £650,000. Now there's a further inheritance tax allowance that was introduced about five or six years ago now called the residence nil-rate band. The residence no rate band is worth £175,000 per person and again can be transferred between spouses. So, in the example we've got there with mum, she's sitting on allowances of £650,000. If she owns a residence, a house or flat or whatever, and is passing that on her death to direct descendants, children or stepchildren, or grandchildren or step grandchildren, um, she can claim an additional allowance of £175,000 for herself and also the 100% transferred residence nil-rate ban from her late husband, another £175,000.
1: So if your house and all your assets come to under a million, you don't pay inheritance tax, with all the caveats we've just spoken about.
2: Yes, the the main caveat being that you have to have a house worth more than £350,000 to claim the full allowances.
1: Okay, I think I understand that. Anyway, go to a lawyer, kids, and they'll work it all out for you. Can you write a will
2: yourself? You can write a will yourself. There are certain formalities that go with making a will. So under the Wills Act, which has been in place now for nearly 200 years, the main formality is that the will has to be witnessed uh, by two people who are together at the same time as you sign your will. So in other words, you need three people together together Mm -hmm. The person making the will signs it in front of the other two and then they sign their names. Now, that sounds relatively straightforward, but it often goes wrong when people are making their own wills. And the other things that go wrong are that people don't think through what would happen if certain people die in the wrong order, if I can put it like that. So, Mm -hmm. yes, you can make your own will, but actually making a will isn't very very expensive it's probably about three or four hundred pounds and not not much more for a married couple because married couples or couples of any kind are usually making mirror wills that are kind of similar to each other now I know that that can be a a barrier for some people the cost so I would recommend looking at the kind of free will schemes that some charities run so for instance some of the major charities out there will allow you to make a will and they will pick up the cost. They're hoping, but they can't insist on it, they're hoping that you will perhaps make a donation to them at the time you make the will, or maybe even leave a gift to them in your will. The point of using a solicitor, and of course I'm biased about this, but we do kind of add value to the process, and I often feel that I've done my job correctly if I've sense-tested what someone wants to do, and perhaps persuaded them to do things slightly differently. Uh, just through my own experience so Mm. you know for me that that's a success
1: you mentioned about if someone's not happy and that's something I hear a lot if someone in your family has died and you're not happy with the will for whatever reason what's your first port of call
2: well the first thing I'd say there Annalisa is challenging a will is not for the faint-hearted it's it's an emotional roller coaster and it's an enormous financial risk. And I, I say that as someone who spends part of my time acting for people who are challenging wills. Before you start on that road, you've got to be absolutely clear that you really want to do it. You've got to be clear about what the financial risks are. It's not over quickly and it's, it's one that can be all consuming from an emotional point of view. Having said all that, having given that kind of government health warning, for some people it's really, really important that they challenge it for financial reasons because they've been left out of a will and that means that they're facing a very uncertain financial future. So I I completely understand why people do it, but don't do it if it's just a matter of principle because principles are very expensive in the end.
1: But if you do need to challenge it, would you go to a solicitor?
2: Absolutely, because it is fraught with financial risk, because there are very specific rules about will challenges that you've got to comply with. And of course, once you actually get into litigation and get into the court system, there are strict timetables to adhere to. For instance, if you're going to bring a claim for for financial dependency, for reasonable financial provision, you've got to do that within six months of the grant of Probate or grant of representation be, being issued. If you, if you don't do it within that time frame, you're not going to even start. You know, so you need to take legal advice early.
1: And you need you've got six months to apply for probate. Is that correct? That's how long
2: it usually takes. There's no there's no timetable for when you have to apply for probate. Uh, there's six months for you to report the death to HMRC if there's going to be inheritance tax payable.
1: Do you have to pay inheritance tax in six months?
2: Yes, you do. You you have to make payment of inheritance tax before you can apply for the grant of probate, which can, for some people, be a bit of a catch-22 situation because they need to access the funds before they can pay the tax and they can't access the funds without the grant. But I'm glad to say that the world's moved on a bit in the last few years in that regard and banks and building societies will now release funds direct to HMRC before you've got the grant of probate, which is very, very helpful indeed to allow people to pay the tax before they get the grant. The other little tip to remember is that...
1: I have always thought the six-month thing is really harsh when you're also dealing with grief. Yeah. You mentioned if you don't maybe discuss it with the executors of your will, when it happens, they're not happy. What happens if your executors bow out? Yeah, well,
2: it does sometimes happen. Executors don't want to do it. Executors become poorly themselves even die before you so it starts off with the executors they've got the right to deal with it but if they don't or can't it goes down to the beneficiaries
1: and gary if you make a will and then five years time you decide you want to change it you can update a will can't you
2: of course, you can make you can make a new will at any time as long as you've got capacity to do so. You can you can you can change your will and update it. And actually, that, that that happens all the time. Life moves on, situations move on, friendships wane and and develop. People are lost along the way. So, as a rule of thumb, I think five years is a really good period of time to actually get the will down from the shelf, dust it down, and see is it something that needs to be changed. More often than not, it won't be. But sometimes it will be time to just update it.
1: And it's also a good time to have a conversation about all these things as well, even if it's with no one but yourself.
2: Conversations with with yourself are great, aren't they? Absolutely.
1: (laughs) So I think we've done a thorough, thorough recce on wills. What else is there to think about if you're thinking about death and dying? What about Lasting Power of Attorney? Is that what it's called?
2: Yeah, lasting power of attorney, of course, isn't about death and dying because it's about when you're alive and and losing capacity or needing support to make decisions whilst you're alive. But the two things do tend to go together. I think if people are in the zone about making a will and thinking about death, then there might be a period of time before death when I need a bit of support and help. And that's where lasting power of attorney comes in. It's a document, a legal document, whereby... The the person who is making the LPA, who we call the donor, the donor is appointing named people, who we call the attorneys, to support them with making decisions if they need support about making decisions because they are beginning to lack capacity. And indeed, the attorneys can also take over and make decisions for someone if they are lacking capacity and can't make decisions for themselves. It's very common for LPA to be used for older people but of course also there are people that have an illness or accident that have some kind of brain injury that uh, where LPA would be helpful for, for younger people as well so the government would like everyone over 18 to have an LPA I don't think they'll ever achieve that because once you're 18 you, you have legal responsibility for yourself and, and your assets and if you're lacking capacity someone needs to step in and, and make those decisions for you if you can't make them for yourself.
1: And there's two types of LPA, isn't there? Financial and health.
2: There are, yes. So there's LPA for property and finances and LPA for health and welfare. Now, my personal view, I don't know if you agree, Annalisa, is they're both equally important.
1: But, you see, I can understand why people find them really scary because it's the thought of handing over power and control to someone else. And what about if that other person abuses it? So what what kind of safety checks are there there? Well, yeah, and I'm
2: sure you get lots of letters, Annalisa, don't you, where, where the, there are allegations of financial abuse. And it's a really tricky one. And the way I reconcile this with clients is is by saying the the most important decision about LPA is not deciding to do it. It's deciding who your attorneys are going to be, because they are the people who you're giving very significant power to. You know, there's there's no two ways about it. It is very significant to say, I'm going to allow this personal person or persons to make decisions for me if I'm lacking capacity in, in the future. There are safeguards that you can put into the document. You could put a preference in there to say, if there's going to be a decision about selling my home, I would like my attorneys to get a valuation from three estate agents and sell to an independent person and not someone connected to, to them. Or I'd like them to inform a third party maybe a trusted friend or other family member so that things happen in a transparent and open way and you're not giving too much power to enable people to uh, exploit it
1: but when would an lpa be triggered i mean who would decide that
2: yeah this is one of the most difficult things the starting point here is to think about the mental capacity act deals with the law regarding capacity and The really good news is that the Mental Capacity Act says that we should all be assumed to have capacity at any given time. So the starting point with any decision that you're making is that you have capacity to make that decision. And what that means is that people who are asserting that you don't have that capacity have got to prove it. They've got to prove that you're lacking capacity. What that also means is that if you are asserting that you have capacity to make that decision for yourself, you should be listened to. Ultimately, it's a legal test, usually implemented by a medical professional, that decides whether you have capacity to make a particular decision or not.
1: And also, as a, as the attorney, everything you do must be in the best interests of the donor, mustn't they?
2: Absolutely, yes. So if you're acting as an attorney, you have to stand in the shoes of the donor and make decisions that they would make for themselves, that are in their best interests and not your best interests. Mm. There is a department at the Office of the Public Guardian, the OPG. They have a safeguarding unit, and if you're concerned about the conduct of an attorney, you can make a report to the safeguarding unit for them to investigate and for the attorney to be asked to explain various transactions that have happened.
1: I suppose, Gary, a lot of people are worried with LPAs that it means that just by making it, you automatically give control to your attorneys. But that's not the case, is it?
2: Yeah, you're right there. Of course, it's not the case at all. Uh, Making an LPA is planning for the future. Uh, And I think the best time to make an LPA is when you are well, when you can make decisions about who you want to appoint without being rushed into it, And without there being any kind of concern that you're under duress or lacking capacity at the time. So your attorneys are not going to be able to access your bank account straight away. They're not going to be accessing your medical records. They will only have that power in the event of you lacking capacity or in the event of you giving them permission to do that at a time when you feel that you're starting to lose capacity and, and, and need support.
1: And is LPA something you can do yourself? LPA is something
2: you can do yourself. The government have introduced a digital tool on the gov.uk website. Lots of people do do it themselves. I will make the point that as a solicitor, you can add value to that process and you can sense test what people want to do you can talk about different scenarios and, and how they might play out that's the value that a solicitor can bring to the process and that you would pay for if you wanted to go through the solicitor route but i'm bound to say plenty of people do it themselves using the digital tool
1: are there any other documents or anything else apart from wills and lpas that should be in here do you think Gary?
2: i think connected to the lpa for health and welfare is the concept of advanced care planning so under an lpa for health and welfare most people give their named attorneys the authority to refuse medical treatment on their behalf. So as we are now, autonomous people who make our own decisions about our health and welfare, if you're lacking capacity, you can't refuse medical treatment. And some people quite rightly become concerned about that, thinking, well, if I'm lacking capacity, if I'm old, if I'm in a care home, I don't necessarily want my life prolonging. We're not talking about euthanasia, but we're just talking about prolonging life in circumstances where you would consider it not having value. So an example might be you're elderly, you've got dementia and you're diagnosed with with cancer. Would you want to have cancer treatment that, that might be not very pleasant? We will all have a view on that, And no one's view is right or wrong. It's our personal view. If we had capacity, we could articulate that view and say, you know what, I'm not going to have that cancer treatment. I'm just going to let it happen, take its course and die naturally. If you're lacking capacity, you can't make that decision. So people enter into a document called an advanced decision to refuse treatment, an ADRT, that sets out the circumstances where they would like their attorneys for health and welfare to refuse medical treatment on their behalf. Because it's one thing giving your attorneys that power and authority under the LPA, and it's another thing actually you stipulating when you'd want them to exercise it and in effect give them permission to do it. And, and the way I, I often articulate it, to be honest, is that under the LPA for health and welfare, you are naming actors who are going to advocate on your behalf the ADRT, the Advanced Decision to Refuse Treatment, is actually giving them a script and telling them what you want them to say and when. And, and I, I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it.
2: It's actually a kindness to your attorneys. that They they know that they're doing what you want rather than being given this awful dilemma of of what to do, you know.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely lack of communication in so many things, but especially in you know matters like these can cause so much guilt and pain where if you just Mm. stipulate it and think about it in advance I suppose in a way it's wills and all that stuff is you know a lot of people say like well I'm dead what do I care but it's really also I think you said that earlier about thinking about the people you leave behind. Gary thank you ever so much for making what's quite a difficult and complicated subject a little easier to understand. Thanks so much to Gary Rycroft and I hope it was all a whole heap less scary than you thought it would be. I do believe that the more we talk about these things, the less frightening it all becomes. If this episode encourages you to attend to some pre-death paperwork, well done. Do let us know at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. Plan still exists at planif.org.uk. The best way to find a solicitor to help you make your will is by word of mouth as I think it's really important to find someone you're comfortable talking to. To find a solicitor that can help you make your will, go to the Law Society's website, lawsociety.org.uk. It's under Private Clients, Wills. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham. And our artwork is by Lo Cole. Follow us on Instagram at pocketanalisa or you can email us at conversationswithanalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next time.
0: only from rustolium
1: Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free, so if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our Acast supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.